0: Listen for a word of God, Romans chapter 8. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it's that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit so that we're children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If, in fact, we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the very Spirit intercedes with sides too deep for words. The Word of God. Young lady, one day when you're ready, we will correct this. It was one sentence and he was gone. One sentence delivered with a passion of the Protestant reformers, performers, One tension-filled sentence, with pause and a scowled jowl, and Charles disappeared. The next time the topic surfaced, he was more restrained and proper, Dear Pastor, one day, when I retire, I shall give my attention to this heresy, and, if you are agreeable, perhaps, an entire sermon series on the topic. And Charles was gone. The next time the topic surfaced, he asked if I'd given it more thought. And Charles was gone. If we still had our dear friend with us, our ethics professor, friend, decades-long community member, Charles Teal, he would argue a thesis with gusto. Yeah, round, pear-shaped tones coming from his diaphragm. His thesis would be that the most important word of the Lord's Prayer is the first word, our. The most important, challenging, difficult, uncooperative, unmanageable word of this beautifully structured, poetic prayer is that very first word. This was our topic last week. If you need to catch up in the conversation, subscribe to the Sermon Podcast and look for this particular series, Honest to Jesus. We pray the Lord's Prayer every week in this church community. Now we're trying to understand how what we pray brings us the focus we need in 2020. Our. Our. That was our word last week. After worship, two careful listeners, they named the tension between the words we sang and the words I spoke. Here was the first song we sang last week, One Thing Remains. Your your love never fails. It never gives up. It never gives out on me. On and on and on and on it goes. It overwhelms and satisfies my soul. One thing remains, one thing. Your love never runs out on me. And then we sang In Christ Alone. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song, my comforter, my all in all. Here in the love of Christ, I stand. Singular, personal lyrics. And Pastor Devo reminded me that less of the worship songs we seem to enjoy singing are in the plural communal voice. Charles, Charles, he protested these private lyrics too. All the same heresy, he said, in his thinking. He showed up once here at the church with a couple of handmade church banners in his hands, Those tapestry kind that used to hang on the walls in the sanctuary. One banner had a loaf of bread and the other banner had a cup with uh, juice. the, The bread and the cup, we used them for communion service. The body broken for me, one banner said. The cup spilled for me, the other banner said. And Charles called it. His proposal was that we cross out the word me with a large X and we mark that faulty language and we embroider new language right next to it, us. The body broken for us, the cup spilled for us. We don't say, my father, give me my bread, forgive me my sins because our prayer is common and communal. It's a collective, we pray not for one but for all when we say our We pray our sibling status will be restored. And we acknowledge that God can't be owned or possessed or doesn't belong to any one group of tithe-paying people or another. It's a big three-letter word. The first word of the prayer. It ought to actually trouble us for a long while. So it's good this week that we move on to a simple word. Thank God for the next word in the prayer. The second word of the Lord's prayer is Father, Father. Now this is when I wish I could see your faces and hear your voices. I wish to see your responses and your reactions. Are you in the Amen Choir right now? Father, it's simple and satisfying way to address God. God as Father, it conjures up for you the best of parental protection and provision. God as Father, it summons satisfying, sweet moments, good, grateful memories. You're in the Amen Choir? Thank goodness God, our Father, this week. Are you in the neutral zone? God as Father is neither here nor there. It simply is. We all know God has no name in Scripture. Remember the scene from Exodus chapter 3? Moses and God comes to Moses in this burning bush and gives Moses an assignment to go to Pharaoh and get those slaves free. And Moses says to the burning bush, When I go to Pharaoh, who shall I say sent me? What is your name? And God responds, I am, I am. I am the God that I am. Moses knows that's lame. Gods have names. God have names in stories. Well, not Israel's God. Yahweh will eventually be understood as the name of Israel's God, so sacred it couldn't even be spoken out loud. Are you in the neutral zone? God as Father makes sense. It, it would be rather clumsy and artificial to pray a prayer. Our am that I am, for example. Our Father, at least it fits with language the way we know how to use it. Are you in the offended zone? God as Father only works because you haven't met my Father or had my Father, one person said to me 15 years ago. There's no amount of recovering that word. I cannot pray that prayer. There are 58 words in the Lord's Prayer. I asked you last week, begin to identify which of these words capture your attention. Get a journal. Yes, start writing and thinking about it. Truthfully, we really can't separate any one word from the other words that surround it. So the opening address of our prayer, the to whom it may concern part of the prayer, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our Father in heaven, it's actually heavens, the plural. The pla- Remember, this prayer comes wrapped in a heritage. It has its own history. Here's our first example. Why is the greatest prayer we pray addressed to a father? Because people in the ancient world were very careful about how they approached their gods. The gods didn't need the people. The people needed the gods. So they developed rituals to guide them, to bring them to bring them closer to the gods. They would bring the gods sacrifices and charms and amulets and prayers. Prayers often follow patterns and formulas and you address a prayer to your deity. So why not then simply use the word God? God, that's a word we all know. Because number two, humans reach for words and more words when things get fuzzy. It's a habit maybe we could unlearn, right? Nevertheless, more words, more words in our search to connect and identify with God deeply, we reach for metaphors and descriptions. We understand metaphors function throughout the Bible, right? In John's Gospel, Jesus is described as the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. A few verses later, John will refer to Jesus as the Lamb of God, and all the way at the end of our Bibles, there's a scene where Jesus descends on a throne as a lamb having been wounded. Do we think it's a four-legged arm, a four-legged farm animal enthroned on the king's chair? We don't. We, we don't expect Jesus to return to earth one day as an animal. We, we understand, at some level, we understand metaphors deepen and bring large life to our stories. And we resist pushing these metaphors to their literal meanings. We instruct our youngest children to pray dear Jesus, not dear lamb. I mean, as soon as I say it out loud, of of course, of course. So why address God as Father out of all of the metaphors? That's a good question. Number three, addressing God as a parent is common in Scripture. It's common in the developing Israelite faith. It's common in Judaism. Look at the additional metaphors for God in the Bible that Jesus didn't choose when he taught us to pray. Our king, our warrior, our conqueror, Our fortress, our rock, our light, our sun and shield, our potter, our vine, our root of Jesse, our Almighty. The metaphor Jesus used when he cried out in crisis in Gethsemane before his crucifixion Abba, Father, translated Father the Father. It's deeply relational. He's not speaking of his earthly father, Joseph. In fact, nowhere in Scripture does he elevate his earthly father. Jesus speaks of a heavenly parent. We don't have relationships with warriors and kings and rocks and roots. We cry, Father, because we're confessing a relational interdependence with the Holy One. And we announce this unique relationship to God when we cry, Father. We're born of God, children of God, heirs of God. Creator is another description for God in the book of Genesis, creator and creatures, but it doesn't call forward that relational interdependence. It's not such vivid family language. When we say father, we claim our status as heirs and children responsible family members. Read Psalm 8 again this week and feel, feel your way through as that, the psalmist describes this relationship. So why is the prayer addressed to father rather than mother? It's another good question. Four, because God is described as a hen pulling chickens under her wings, and a mother bear, and a mother eagle, and a mother in labor, and a nursing mother. In Scripture, God is also described all of these ways. We remember that the prayer is born in a patriarchal society, a world world where the only competent adults were at least male and, more likely, parents. We know this. We know this. We know God is outside of gender. Jesus' addressed to God as Father has nothing to do with God being male because the biblical God is beyond gender differences. We know this from Genesis 1 when God creates. God creates humans, both male and female, not one or the other. Nothing in God is specifically feminine. Nothing in God is specifically masculine. Therefore, nothing in our notion of God is specific to one gender, but to both genders. The theologian from Yale University, Miroslav Volf, helps us. If this is brand new news to you today, please reach out to one of the pastors for conversation or someone that you trust. Because the confusion and misunderstanding and the heretical teaching about God as male has a long history of damage. Still to this day, when we ask children to draw pictures of God, we get men with beards flying through the sky. This prayer actually means that we need to hold space for people who cannot identify God as Father. I think of a student who ran out of worship at HMA, Whole Memorial Auditorium, a few years back when the worship band started playing the Chris Tomlin song, Good, Good Father. And I followed this student out and she crumbled in my arms and wept in a panic. She, she couldn't hardly speak. She just said, not that song, not that song, not that song. Or we think of our own church member, Nancy, who publicly has shared her story here of being raised by a father who was not shy to share his children with the neighborhood men. It had ended one day when her father picked up her little brother to throw him across the room, and Nancy put her body between her father and her brother, and that was the last day they were all together in one space. We can take responsibility to protect the message the church teaches. On travels last summer, the longest line of people waiting to talk to me were women of all ages who came from Adventist churches and homes where they were being taught that they're not actually worthy of leading, that they're to sit down and be quiet, and that their salvation somehow comes through the men in the congregation Visiting teachers and preachers coming through the area, teaching these things. A cluster of teachings that are not biblical, they're not gospel, they're not Adventist for sure, and they're so damaging. The women said to me, where are the men in our congregation to protect us? One author says, don't invite Jesus to your church to talk about patriarchal family values. You will get something other than what you bargained for. Toxic masculinity is not named in scripture. It is experienced. Experiences that allow something to become normal, damaging things to become normal, the way we do things, the way we harm one another, harmful to men and women and children. Layers of damage run deep for centuries. I cannot tell someone else how to feel about the idea of God as Father. People feel what they feel. And the compassion Jesus taught is needed for us to attend to one another. If you struggle on the compassion side of this conversation, then imagine a dinner party and sitting around the table are a variety of people who've been invited. Around the table is a grown-up child of a supportive present father, a grown-up child of a supportive absent father, a child of a present and abusive father, a child of a father who disowned them, a child of a father raised by a village of women, a child with a father not loyal to his own family, or a child who raised themselves. A child who doesn't know a father. A child who suffered egregious, repetitive actions in the custody of their father. Imagine a dinner party and around the table all these various experiences are embodied and in many cases they are yet to be healed and processed and, and redeemed. We can grow more compassion for those of us who didn't have a wonderful father experience, and we can celebrate and cheer every father, every man doing his very best. So then, when one metaphor is compromised for some, try another. Language is what we have in our hands, our heavenly parent, our creator, or simply God. Michaela, age 11, in the book, How Children See God, has imagined God to look like this. I rather like this idea of God sitting at uh, uh, her interpretation of the cloud. If time allowed, I would explore the biblical idea of God as heavenly householder, where the focus is less on creating and caretaking children, but a complex network of responsibilities and interactions and hoped for outcomes. Our Father in the heavens, hallowed be thy name. The prayer will now branch out into these petitions, three petitions about God's well-being, three petitions about human's well-being. The petitions, friends, are not polite requests, as in, may it be so, or if, if you approve of this, God. These petitions are commands and imperatives. They're bossy verbs. You have a bossy uh, older sibling. Are are you the bossy one in your family? These are like bossy verbs, the kinds we try not to use ordering people around. These are so assertive and demanding that through the centuries, some bishops and hosts at communion would modify the prayer so it didn't seem as though people were bossing God. It's fascinating, Jesus teaches us to take this tone in our shared prayer, Hallowed be your name, God. It's a command to God that God's name be hallowed. Who's, who's supposed to do the hallowing? The first of the three petitions, the God, this is one of God's needs, God's name, God's character, God's identity, God's reputation needs hallowing. How is God's reputation known in this world except through the family members, God's family members? When I was growing up, my father didn't want us to park his car at certain establishments around town. He didn't want people to think he might be inside that theater or he might be inside a certain store or your reputation, your good name, right, around town. How is God's name known except for that we as God's family carry God's reputations? We image and bear God's name in the world. We are the ones who also profane God's name. The prayer is brilliant in that it recognizes God must intervene. God, in the end, is the only perfectly holy, sacred being driven by this loving kindness. When we pray, we insist then we have a role. Whatever I plan to do today, my conversations and my relationships and my work and my play and my online interactions, my online interactions, church, my comments... The reputation and character of God will be my driving motivation. Oh, friends, careful what we pray for. This is essentially the third commandment. Do not take the name of the Lord in vain. And it's less about swearing and it's more about wearing, wearing the character of God, the goodness of God, as if it is our own. Image God well in the world when the dominant cultural message right now is be true to yourself, and I understand the message and I believe the message is valuable. The prior message, however, is be true to Jesus, who is true to God. This is the first step in being true to myself. Hallow your name, God, through us. And finally, I've saved the most troubling part of the first sentence of our prayer for the last minute here. Our Father in heavens. Where exactly is the location of these heavens? You Christians, you pray to a distant God in galactical spaces, the critics taunt us. We are able to vote from space this month. Did you see the story about the astronaut Kate Rubens, a cancer biologist who sequences DNA in space? What a job. She will cast her vote from space. We can vote from space, but we can't actually name where in the vast universe is God's home Nobel Prizes were awarded this week. The Nobel Prize in Chemistry shared by two scientists, Carpentier and Duda. I hope I'm pronouncing their names. They're awarded a prize for genome editing, developed a way to turn molecules into a tool for customizing genes. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Of Five of us. A tool for customizing genes, microbes, plants, animals, humans. We can do that, but we can't actually name the location of God right now. This is a crisis prayer of separation. God is somewhere and we are not. We are somewhere and God is not. We're separated, longing to be reunited. The first sentence of this prayer, our predicament is clear. Every time we pray the prayer, we remind ourselves, we're not okay because God is not fully here. So family, get a journal and start with your own reflections and translate the prayer with your own language. Here's my translation this week of just the first sentence. I might change it next week. It's not ready for publication, so go easy on me. If I were to translate the first sentence with my words, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, I might say, parent of us all, who is not where we are, and that's enough of a crisis on its own, what were you thinking having your character and image in our hands? Trust us when we say, intervene now. We are in over our heads. When our youngest daughter was tiny, we were playing in a pool, and she came to a diving board, and she bounced and bounced and bounced and leaped through the air, looked out to make sure she could see that I was there to catch her. And I quickly swam and positioned myself under her. We were in a deep pool. I was treading water, and she, here she comes, here she comes, here she comes, and I catch this child, I don't know, age five, six... And we both go down in the water and we sink, sink, sink. And I told myself that day, we are going down and we are not surviving. We are going down and we're not surviving. And panic came over me and panic came over me. And I remember crying out, God, we're sinking. We didn't sink that day, but I understand that feeling. We are so in over our heads. This prayer confesses our reality. We're in over our heads, God, but it simultaneously also claims this hope. The Apostle Paul captures our predicament and the hope when he says in Romans 8, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you don't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it's the very Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we're children of God, and if children, then heirs, and if heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, if, in fact, we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. We don't know how to pray. So Jesus gives us words and the Spirit gives us strength. When the Spirit gives us strength, be very careful how we pray. Amen.